Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about women in the patristic era. And joining me to do that, we have Grace Sangalang Ng, who is a PhD student in education at Biola University. How's it going, Grace? It's going well. Thanks, John. And we have Dr. Chris Porter, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at Trinity College, Melbourne. How's it going, Chris? Doing well. Thanks, John. And we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Lynn Kohick, who is Provost and Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Illinois. She is the author of Women in the World of the Earliest Christians, Illuminating Ancient Ways of Life with Baker, and the co-author with Amy Brown Hughes of Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the Second through Fifth Centuries, also with Baker. And Dr. Kohik is also the author of a few commentaries uh, on Philippians in the Story of God Bible Commentary Series, as well as two commentaries on Ephesians, one in the New Covenant Commentary Series by Cascade, and most recently in the New International Commentary on the New Testament Series by Erdman's, which came out in November of 2020. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kohik. Oh, I'm delighted to have this conversation. Thank you for the invitation. So how about we begin by hearing a little bit about what got you interested in this topic? Well, I think uh, probably it started in graduate school when I had a course on Julian of Norwich. And that uh, is a medieval figure, fascinating, a revelation or a a lengthy vision that she had uh, that just piqued my interest in what uh, women's spirituality looked like and, and also how scholars addressed a woman having visions and maybe in different ways, having maybe a different level of authority than men who at the time, the mystics would have their visions. And so I, I just began to think not, not only about historical women and how they express their Christianity, but also how as a guild, uh, the historians and uh, those in biblical studies and theology looked at, evaluated, um, talked about uh, women and women's writings. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing about um, how you got interested in uh, researching more about women in the church. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the prominent women from the first centuries of the early church? Sure. So thinking uh, beyond the biblical period, uh, which I think we'll we'll eventually talk about a little bit later in the in our conversation, but when I look at like the second and third centuries, the pre-Constantine church, there are a couple of named women. Thecla comes to mind as someone very, uh, very influential. There's also some unnamed uh, women or women that seem to be a part of groups like the uh, Montanists. We don't know that much about, but with Thecla and with those uh, who might have been part of the Montanist movement, we have women who are known for uh, their deep devotion to the Christian message and their authoritative voice in speaking to other men and women, some of who of whom convert. And then I would say this is also the time period when we have martyrs and both men and women were martyred. Not not a great number, but it's not the amount of martyrs that really matter. It's the fact that the martyrs captured the imagination of believers at this time. They were considered the pinnacle of discipleship, and they and they shaped 
what people thought of, especially within the church, as ultimate devotion. So when the age of martyrdom stopped and Christianity became a religion that people could practice without persecution, martyr stories became a a very important way of stepping into this new era of the church. And you had uh, with that also worship practices like the uh, veneration of relics, uh, the visiting of cult sites that honored the memory of the martyrs. And so there's, there's continuity across from pre and post Constantine. And women play a very important role in preserving the memory of being remembered and then preserving the memory. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, I find it interesting you talk about preserving the memory because it, it strikes me that a lot of people, even scholars, have forgotten. Uh, I remember being at a academic church event and I, I made me- mention of the church mothers and fathers. And I, I had this response and saying, we, we know what the church fathers are. We know who the church fathers are. Uh, but we f- completely like that. Who are the church mothers? Who are these mystical people that you talk about that? They don't even seem to exist in, on our radar. So I'm wondering, in terms of, uh, and, and certainly some of them, such as Junior, seem to be uh, masculinized. Uh, we have Junior becoming Junior's in various different forms. Um, so I'm interested in just thinking about in the patterns of how these stories are told. It strikes me that a lot of the time these stories are told uh, as if the women are becoming men. From our perspective, that seems like a modernization of things, but interesting in the broader category of, of, of sort of how do, are those women's, sto- women's stories told? What are the features and the, and the frameworks that they, uh, we see them be told in? Yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, that question, uh, I think, is, is such an important one as people explore what women were doing at that time. Uh, first of all, we have not a lot of evidence, very little evidence directly from women themselves. So in trying to to find their voice, it's difficult. It's mediated through men. So that's one struggle. And then I would say also their actions at times are mediated or redefined. So we have, let's say, Helena, uh, Constantine's mother, who essentially shapes the religious landscape of Jerusalem. But we we think about her traveling to Jerusalem. And we think about it in, often in terms of personal pilgrimage because she's a pious woman, rather than think about she's, she's a, a diplomat. She's, she's part of the imperial family. It's a royal visit. <laughs> and and she, uh, she's doing an important work, in a, a crucial work, in fact, in, in shaping the physical landscape and the liturgical landscape of Jerusalem. But women can go on, on, a, on a visit to a holy site, and it's just a personal pilgrimage. A man does the same thing, and he's on official business. So I think that that's also kind of a struggle as we think about trying to understand the role and the influence that women have. We tend to see, see them doing sort of the same things as men, but defining it differently. So I, I would say those are a couple of hurdles that we have to be aware of, uh, jump over, and trying to create a a more balanced and and true historical picture. I would say also, I think the the reliance on 
viewing this ancient history through a creedal lens or through um, a lens that only looks at the uh, church councils also skews our views. Because uh, as far as I can tell, you don't have women right there at the council meeting. But you've got women who are sponsoring the men <laughs> to travel. You've got women who are in uh, conversation with these men, Jerome writing letters, for example, to important women who help finance his efforts. And so they are in the conversation, but because they don't have an actual invitation to the event <laughs> or cast a vote, so to speak, on a particular creed that's passed, I'm speaking a bit uh, <laughs> tongue in cheek in how that these conferences actually went or these councils actually went, but you get my point. We can erase women from the scene depending on what question or what angle we're, we're taking. But in, when you broaden the lens, you find that they're actually very, very involved at a number of levels in shaping not only practice, but also doctrine. They supported theologians or they withdrew their support from theologians. And that made a difference to that, that theologian, that male theologian's uh, work. So I think categories of like influence and authority are often more helpful in trying to figure out what women were doing at this time and how they were involved in shaping the church, rather than focus on what office did someone hold. Uh, that, that's a little bit too narrow. I find it interesting that many of those tropes or those patterns that we see of reinterpreting how women are operating in the world haven't actually gone away. I think we can see in terms of the conversation around Dr. Jill Biden and her role in society and then her role as a first lady previously, the trope of what it means to be a working woman, uh, what it means to be the second lady at the time, they seem to be the same patterns as the reinterpretation of the function of Helena or of the Desert Mothers. And it just strikes me as so stark in, our, in even our context now. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're going to be talking about first ladies in, in the United States, that, that is a very influential, power, a powerful position. And I can think of Nancy Reagan, Barbara Bush, Laura Bush, Michelle Obama, and uh, Hillary Clinton. They all played a very important role in in the policies and and in the in, in how uh, the the country thought of issues, sometimes raising like for example literacy to the forefront and encouraging um, encouraging that in you know across the country. And I think we'd all be comfortable saying they're very powerful positions, but they weren't voted in, and we would miss something about what it meant to be living in the White House. Uh, if we if we didn't consider the importance of of the uh, first ladies, yeah, yeah, I think that's like really interesting to see um, how the influence of women is highlighted um, in the early church um, and even in um, like the political circles. I'm also interested in seeing um, like the influence of women in our modern day church as well. Um, a lot of times, you know. They do a lot of the behind the scenes kind of work, um, but the, those things are like very influential, you know, like the praying grandmothers um, who are like spiritual giants in our church 
or, you know, the women who are always uh, just willing to serve. And they also have um, just um, a lot of influence. And so I'm wondering um, how can we um, in our modern day church help bring to the forefront those stories of our modern day women? Yeah, you're absolutely right that service sorts of things or things that that we have defined as kind of ancillary or um, support roles seem to fit more naturally on in the category of women's jobs rather than men's jobs. But as you were talking, Grace, I was also thinking of the fellow who mows the grass around the church all the time as, you know, that's really a service job or the uh, maintenance fella. Usually it's a fella, right? That is quietly serving, making sure the heat's on when it needs to be and off when it shouldn't be on so we can save money. Uh, there's a lot, but we don't celebrate them as much either. And maybe maybe you're touching on a failure more broadly uh, within within the church. But I think also to your point, that, that second point of your observation is that uh, women tend to be fitted into roles that might have a lot of responsibility, but don't carry a lot of decision-making authority. And that fits what a lot of people feel is best suited for the female temperament. And, you know, that understanding of what it, what a female is would not be supported by the, the by all the data that uh, we have in the in the biblical text and in the early church. The church would not have shared shared that sentiment, you know, across the board. I mean, they there are certainly some very sharp critiques of what it means to be female. Tertullian's unhappy comments. I think he was sort of a unhappy person all the way around. <laughs> it comes out in a lot of ways. Um, but his, you know, phrase that a wom- the woman is the devil's gateway, yeah, does not boost self-confidence in his uh, junior high girls um, <laughs> in, his, in his church. But he doesn't represent the majority all the time in, in those comments. You also find comments where women, especially those who are educated and those who have wealth, who thus are expected to have proper influence, uh, when they demonstrate it, they're praised. They're praised for that. So I think what happens is we imagine that the kind of view that Aristotle had of male and female, which was very hierarchical, and sort of women lacked those positive things in men. You know, that that view is actually what some Christians operate under today. So that's the biblical view. Really, it's not. It's uh, the biblical view uh, celebrates the possibilities of women stepping into roles of responsibility and authority um, as guided, you know, mm. by the gifts uh, that, that she has been given in the moment that she steps into. You know, we think of Esther for mm. such a time as this. and. Uh, and that certainly was the experience that some women in the church, and they're remembered for, mm. uh, for that. Is there a particular woman whose story um, really combats a lot of these stereotypes, both ancient and, and modern, that you'd like to share with us a little bit more about? Sure. I, I would say the martyr Perpetua, who was martyred in the year 203 in North Africa, she's a new convert, but she has some 
level of education. And she has a diary. She keeps a diary. And I'll encourage the readers to pick up the book and get all the details about did she write it and how all that stuff. But anyway, to sum up, I think it expresses her, her views are represented. And I, I can say that she wrote it with maybe an asterisk there, you know, because I, as every professor has to qualify things, right? <laughs> but anyway, she ends up leading, she's the leader of this group of men and women who are uh, going to be martyred. And they look to her. She has visions where the Lord is preparing her. And then she extends, you know, this knowledge to the group so that they're all prepared as they enter the arena and face their death, or said another way, their birthday, uh, when they enter uh, into the kingdom as they're martyred. So there's an example of a woman who, she's from more the upper class, if I could say that, and has some education. And so there's a naturalness to her uh, leading, but then also she is given these visions. So she has this religious experience that gives her authority. And that would be an example then of a woman who leads both men and women and the community that's not going to be martyred, but is looking to her for, uh, for an example. And her, her testimony continues for centuries. I mean, uh, we have at least two sermons that, uh, of Augustine uh, as he addresses Perpetua and Another uh, woman who's martyred with her, Felicitas, a slave woman, and uh, it, they're they're celebrated every year on their quote unquote birthday. And Augustine comments on them. In fact, you can tell that their story carries authority in the in the community. And and Augustine is trying to manage that as a bishop <laughs> to control their story a little bit, or at least help manage how his parishioners are understanding uh, their testimony. Can you tell us more about Thecla's significance in the early church, such as the cult that developed around her? Sure, sure. What's amazing to me is that this woman who, you know, it's an, an early story. Well, Thecla's story is of a woman who, a uh, young woman who is engaged to be married. She's from a wealthy family. So it means she's a leader in the community and, or her family is, and she hears Paul preach his gospel and she just is suddenly, she's all in, right? She decides she wants to live the gospel message. Now, Paul's gospel message in this document really stresses asceticism, which would in this case mean not getting married, not having sexual relations being very uh, limited in what you eat, being willing to wear very plain clothing. So that, that's the kind of thing with asceticism. And so she embraces all of this, which alienates her fiance, very much angers her mom, but she's committed to this, this life. And so she goes through a number of crises publicly where she faces governors who are ready to uh, kill her because she she presents this alternative uh, way of life where she has you know, she's not going to follow by getting married and 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 she's challenging she's challenging the status quo that says wealth should be promoted and and your your self worth 
is related to how much money you have, your your social status, and, and all of that is challenged by her actions. So that challenge of the kind of the fundamental clue that was holding the social world of the Greco-Roman world together is what gets gets her in trouble. Um, and it's what I think captivates later audiences as they ponder what is it about the gospel that critiques our culture? And are, are there certain things about our culture and our way of life that are that are fine? And and I I think it's her absolute dedication, even uh, being willing to face death, for the ancient church. This idea of asceticism was could be expressed in ways of like self denial. But I think really what they were after is resurrection life. Uh, it, it could emerge sometimes as self denial, almost like self hatred. I mean, we have a few examples. I think of that's where it goes. But really, what what I think they were trying to get at, however imperfectly, is this notion of the resurrected life where passions are not what drive you, but this perfect knowledge, this perfect relationship, uh, this perfection and immortality of the body. And so if you can shape your life now with the same values that you think will be in place in the new heavens and the new earth with your raised and glorified body, well, then why wouldn't you want to, you know, want to do that? And so Thecla rejects the social class self-worth designation that she was born with and instead embraces this life that cares for others and prays a lot and seeks uh, to undo the evil that has befallen others. You know, and 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 that that means she's there with the people and it means that you know, she catches the attention of those who are invested in the status quo and, you know, eventually is, there's a very interesting martyrdom of the, the cave that she's living in kind of opening up and she's stepping in and then the cave wall closing back up so that the men who are after her to uh, debauch her are foiled in their attempt. I think, I think it's the, the story is vivid. But but underneath that also is this resurrection life that is what Agaria uh, is interested in as she visits a very large shrine area uh, dedicated to Thecla. It's why uh, Macrina has the secret name of Thecla uh, that her parents give her because, you know, they're, they're interested in her also having this testimony of seeing beyond this life to the next. Yeah, so I really liked um, how you mentioned um, the idea of resurrection in asceticism. Um, so how does the rise of asceticism factor into the relative roles of women in the early church? Well, I think one of the things um, that uh, sometimes is lost in the conversation is that asceticism was something both men and women did. It had it certainly had uh, they used gendered language to talk about it. It affected uh, the appearance of women and men a bit differently, in as much as a woman's, you know, decorate, you know, decorating her hair or having her elaborate hairstyles was not something that men would do to communicate wealth and status. So the the way they were ascetic had gendered components to it, but the the goal of asceticism of of being able to 
marshal one's passions in service of the Lord, that's something that both men and women did. And, and so that's a way for uh, women to, to, in a sense, be kind of mainstream in discipleship at this time. And again, there, there are extremes that both men and women did that, that harmed their bodies. But the, the fact that women uh, could, could choose asceticism provided opportunities for these women to, to express their religious convictions. Um, not every woman wanted to marry, just like not every man wanted to marry. Some wanted to have this more uh, devotional life of celibacy, and the church gave that space for religious reflection um, at, at this time. So that, that was uh, very helpful. I would also add a category here of modesty, is that that uh, also has gendered expression. I mean, men and women should be modest, but it just looks different. And it's stressed in strong ways for women at this time. And in scholarship today, um, there, there is kind of a mainstream view that women wouldn't necessarily, for any woman that is acting in a modest way or promoting modesty, they're kind of selling out. That is to say, if an, an authentic female response would be one that is countercultural. And if you're not countercultural, then you're not, you can't really know whether this is an authentic decision or not for you. But more recently, people have been allowing for women to uh, perform or to have their own voice. And scholars have allowed that maybe there are these women for whom the modesty codes really reflect their own self-identity as much as anyone is able to have their own identity since we're all in cultures <laughs> um, and all part of families and that sort of thing. But in other words, that, that women can, can embrace a modesty rooted in their theological convictions and not because they, they're just trying to fit into the status quo where they're being squished into uh, some sort of uh, minor role or uh, losing their voice. Instead, their uh, expressions that follow the modesty codes of their time could actually also be their own. So we, we may, uh, in the next uh, decade or so of scholarship, be hearing more women's voices because we're actually opening up uh, the space for women who have been talking, uh, but we've, we've not heard because we've said, you know, for for you to really be a female voice, you have to be countercultural. So there, there may even be more women out there uh, that have yet to speak to us because we just haven't tuned our dial correctly to, to pick up that wavelength. Do we have any evidence of women in the second, third, fourth centuries uh, holding titles like episkopos or, or diakonos or presbyteros or even prophetes? Do we have any kind of like uh, specific evidence of of women holding these titles that we see in the New Testament. Yes, we do have evidence of of women holding those. There's been good research on looking at these titles. One that comes to mind um, it was written in 2011 by Carolyn Osiak and Kevin Madigan, ordained women in the early church. That that gives some details um, on you know the titles. That would be one resource I would recommend. I think one of the 
one of the things we have to be cautious of as we look at titles, like on tombstones or um, in uh, letters, that's where we'll get a lot of this information, is that we're not entirely clear what those titles relate to in terms of responsibility. And it's the same as when you look at artwork at this time and you see uh, women pictured in the Iran's position, right, which uh, is in some cases a bishop blessing uh, and in other cases is, is a pagan uh, posture that precedes the, the rise of Christian art. So that, that's one of the dangers, I think, of just doing a title search. And I know that's not specifically what your, your question was about, but I just want to caution people that even if we found it, right, when we have them, so they're there. Uh, they, there's a little bit of difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church in, in this regard as well. But even when we find them, that doesn't necessarily tell us all that the women did or didn't do. And I think even more importantly, there are women that are doing a lot and they don't have the title that matches their responsibility. And, you know, true today, as Grace's uh, question revealed, right? So that's where I think. Uh, as, as we look back at the history, it's very helpful to ask what are they doing and how are they being remembered? Because that's going to help us to see what kind of influence and authority they had. So Robert Webb has this hermeneutical proposal about trajectory hermeneutics, this idea that you know across the Bible, you see cer- certain liberative trajectories for slaves and for women in particular. And I'm curious to know what you make of that sort of uh, hermeneutical proposal in the light of what actually takes place in the early church. Do you see that trajectory uh, increasing, declining, plateauing? How would you sort of discuss this relative to that hermeneutical proposal? How how I might might frame it um, in reference to women, let's say in the biblical period, would be um, the gospel freeing or challenging, freeing disciples to live into their self-worth as God has has established. So when Paul says to the Galatians, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male and female, you're all one in Christ. I think what what, at least one of the things that he's saying there is that your self-worth cannot be limited to what the wider society is saying to you. Uh, I think now there's a phrase, you can kind of say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That may be a way that uh, what Paul is talking about. So in that sense, there's a liberation, uh, I think, from being bound to culture's restrictions. The trajectory bit, I guess I would link the trajectory movement as the gospel builds on the promises that were made in, in the Old Testament to the fulfillment of those uh, in the new, then do we see this happening in the in the church? Well, you know, it depends, I guess, on your yardstick. So, the church followed the synagogue in emphasizing reading and writing because they're people of the book. So, educating women becomes really important. We see that Paul in First uh, Timothy let a woman learn is, is very forceful, actually. The English doesn't, I think, carry it as strongly as, as the Greek does. Uh, women should learn. So he's writing to pagan women, uh, talking with Timothy there in Ephesus, these pagan women who 
there's no reason for them to necessarily be educated. But again, following the tradition of the synagogue, yeah, women needed to, to know. And so that, that is an important trajectory that I think continued in the church to one degree or another as, and that, that was different from some of the, certainly from the paganism that was, that they faced uh, early on. So I'd say that would be a, a trajectory. Then I think also the, there was an expectation in the, in the Greco-Roman culture that if you had resources, you, it was important for you to share them in a particular in and benefit society. But the way that uh, you benefited was typically to your friends or for show. And what the gospel did and the, and the trajectory there was it encouraged, especially women who had money to benefit those who wouldn't necessarily be able to benefit them back. So it reshaped, I would say, an expectation in culture and continued a trajectory of women's involvement in important ways in the, the uh, church being in the community. And the, so, you know, healthcare and hospitals, uh, that, that's something that the church entered into uh, that was, you know, not something that the, the pagans would have been uh, equipped from a worldview um, to, uh, to do at that time. I wonder if it's a similar um, proposition to the talk of trajectories in Christology, uh, that a trajectory implies a starting point and a route or a, a pattern of getting from A to B. And just like in early Christology, we know the starting point, we know the ending point, but the, the, the path to get there isn't, isn't, doesn't look like a neat trajectory that we can predict. But it, um, in, uh, as if you're firing a cannonball off into the into the uh, to hit a target, but rather it has twists and turns that end up in all sorts of different locations. And when we get data in between, you kind of go, "How does this fit in in uh, in the gaps?" And so I wonder if trajectory is too neat a term. It, it's one of those sort of herme- hermeneutical uh, engagements that we kind of go, "How do we f- figure out where this goes?" So if it if it is less of a, of a trajectory and more of a, a path that is followed in the interpretation of the Old Testament themes which come up in the New and then in the early church, how do you read, Lynn, the early church, how, how they're reading the New Testament uh, passages about women and leadership, such as 1 Timothy, and um, how are they factoring that into their own engagement with uh, these patterns or these, the redemptive patterns of Scripture? or uh, leadership in the early church. Right. Yeah. Well, I think one of the, one of the things that as I first started studying back in um, graduate school, just become interested in this time period, I realized there's, there aren't commentaries, you know, commentaries come later and then they are done on Old Testament books, not so much on New Testament books. So what we have instead, I think in the pre-Constantine period is sermons, but a lot of those sermons aren't aren't preserved, or we have treatises like what Tertullian would write, and and they might comment on or use a particular passage, but they're not they're not trying to exegete in the way that I would exegete, you know, Paul's letter to the Ephesians or to the Philippians, something like that. So I think we're cut, we're we're left in some way with well, what were women doing, and what were they commenting on women doing as our evidence. And, and it's sporadic, right? Because we have very little that is written about women. 
So yeah, leading in the church, I guess I would think about how they tell stories about women doing things that the best disciple would do. And and they also can tell stories of women not doing things well, or going back to the story of Thecla. There's a, a short passage in uh, Tertullian where he seems to take to task someone who is using Thecla's story to, to defend their practice of baptism. And their practice of baptism involves a woman doing the baptizing. And Tertullian seems not to like that. Now, whether the story of Thecla actually says that, I, I, you know, that's up, I think, to debate. And I'm not sure if Tertullian is is saying that that's what the story of Thecla actually says. What he's talking about is someone using the story of Thecla to do something that he doesn't like. And, and so that's kind of the way we need to go at discerning what are these, what are these second and third century Christians thinking about the New Testament narrative. What I glean from some of these incidences is that they, there, there is a sense in which women are going to speak into the life of the congregation. And sometimes they do so in a way that makes the particular bishop, or in Tertullian's case, you know, a presbyter, uncomfortable. Of course, that happens outside of the church too. Men uh, at this time feel very free to talk about women who irritate them, (laughs) so are doing irritating things. So it's not just limited to uh, to the church, but the church is also holding up women as examples. And this is what I think is so amazing to note. They're holding up women as examples of discipleship for men and women. These are not, Thecla's not held up as, oh, you know, you girls grow up to be Thecla. Thecla is held up as this is something that all Christians could aspire to. And that would be the same with Perpetua. I think that's key. When, when, I, when I would look at studying women at this time, it, it's not so that I could be a better female disciple. At least that's not what, I mean, I hope I would. <laughs> but but the, the church is not preserving it for that purpose. It's preserving it so that men and women will be more faithful because they have this example of a faithful woman who, in many cases, is martyred. I mean, that's why they're remembering this story. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Kohik. I really appreciated that point about how these women that we're talking about are not just role models for women, but that these are role models for Christians, and that the idea is that these are helpful models for Christian discipleship. I think that's a really beautiful point, and just really appreciate all your insights and and, and, um, all of your thoughts today. Thanks for joining us. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much for the conversation.
you'd like more engagement of Theology, Culture, and Discipleship from the Two Cities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. If you like the content that we put out here on the Two Cities podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.